0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Bruton Tyrosine Kinase Inhibitors for MS, Progress in the Development of an Emerging Therapeutic Approach. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerviewcom forward slash NXB860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the 2021 CMSC presidential debate. Um, between myself and Dr. Traboulsi. I've not done a program with two podiums like this before, but I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, 7 p.m. on the second-to-last day, so we're looking to have a little bit of fun, a little bit of interaction tonight. So first, in terms of welcoming uh, everyone, I'm thrilled to be joined with my uh, co-host tonight, Dr. Traboulsi. Okay, so this talk uh, tonight, or the series of talk, is split into three phases. Uh, I'm up first uh, and I'm going to be talking about the science of BTK inhibition in the context of B-cell depletion and B-cell-targeted therapies, I should say, in multiple sclerosis. Then I'm going to turn things over to Tony to talk about some of the data we have relative to clinical trials for BTK inhibition and multiple sclerosis, and then we're going to end with a case discussion and hopefully have enough time for questions and answers and discussion with everybody here. So why are we having this session tonight? So for over 20 years, there have been new classes of drugs that have been studied in multiple sclerosis and ultimately released in MS, and this is a new class for us to use as MS clinicians, and uh, trials are underway, as you're going to hear about, but this is a science that, and a mechanism of action in biology that we are not familiar with as a profession, and we want to raise the awareness about this. Uh, because you will be getting questions from your patients and families, and hopefully, if the trials go well, actually be able to prescribe. So let's talk about multiple sclerosis in general and, and ask a question that uh, some in the audience will recognize over the last 30 years evolved from um, the notion of heresy, uh, where you could not suggest uh, multiple sclerosis was a B-cell-mediated disease, to a very mainstream uh, point of view. So we know that you can get uh, B cells uh, isolated from the spinal fluid of multiple sclerosis patients. You know if you look at the meninges of patients, you can actually see germinal centers and um, follicles forming with B cells present in the germinal centers. And we know that B cells can produce biologically active antibodies in our multiple sclerosis patients. And I would say most importantly, what we've seen over the last 10 years is some of the most profound therapeutics in multiple sclerosis, have been anti-B cell therapies or B cell depleting therapies. So when talking about multiple sclerosis as a B cell disease, there is now a potential new entity, a new therapeutic option to alter B cells uh, within our patients. And that's where BTK inhibition comes in. So what I want to do is introduce you to the biology of Bruton's tyrosine kinase and then allow you to see how a therapeutic intervention may be of benefit to our patients. So let's just start as we always should on 7 p.m., hopefully everybody had a couple drinks beforehand, talking about protein kinases. As a reminder, and this is actually important, believe it or not, protein kinases are enzymes. I want you to remember that because we're going to bring it up later. And they are responsible for signal transduction within cells, and they modulate their, or they have their effect in terms of signal transduction through phosphorylation of target proteins. The reason this is important is, as a field, we have never had a therapy that has an enzyme as a target. This is new for us in the world of multiple sclerosis, and it will have implications for some of the data that Tony's going to talk to you about from clinical trials. So within kinases, there are thousands of them. One of them is called Bruton's tyrosine kinase. It is named for the inventor, a pediatrician, Ogden Bruton, who described it in 1952 after finding children with X-linked A-gamma globulinemia who had mutations in this protein. So this is an inherited immunodeficiency. The children suffer recurrent infections because they don't have B cells and they don't have antibodies because the B cells aren't developing correctly. It turns out that Bruton's tyrosine kinase is critical for B cell development at several stages. Early on in B cell development, all the way up through follicular maturation, And without the Bruton's tyrosine kinase in these kids, the B-cells wouldn't develop and they would have a lobulinemia So there are multiple potential targets along the B-cell differentiation pathway that an inhibitor could have an impact. So let's talk about what the normal function is of this kinase within a B-cell. So within the B-cell, once an IgM B-cell receptor or an IgG B-cell receptor is activated... The Bruton's tyrosine kinase is one of the downstream proteins that modulates signal transduction, leading to the following different biologies. Antigen presentation, differentiation in cytokine production, and ultimately antibody production. And so if you were to modulate this enzyme within B cells, you would expect for there to be less of these activities within the adaptive immune system. What about B cell replication? We're used now, as a field, to using monoclonal antibodies, anti-B cell-targeted monoclonal antibodies, to deplete cells via apoptosis. But what if we could alter just the B cell replication without inducing necessarily as much cell death by wiping out the entire population? So while deficiency of Bruton's tyrosine kinase leads to immunosuppression, what's interesting is if you have over Activation. If you have certain mutations within this enzyme, you can actually develop B-cell malignancies. So the original development of Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors were amongst our oncology colleagues to treat different leukemias, and indeed the FDA approved a BTK inhibitor for CLL in 2016. And it turns out there are multiple hematologic malignancies that may benefit from inhibition of Bruton's tyrosine kinase, and there are multiple studies underway looking at these different malignancies. But that's to inhibit an overactive cancer cell. What happens in autoimmune disease? So in autoimmunity, an autoantigen presented to a B cell leads to a lot of downstream events. And not just antibody production, autoantibody production, or antigen presentation, but there is crosstalk between autoreactive B cells and autoreactive T cells that can lead to a cascade of events of inflammation that has formed our understanding of multiple sclerosis, that there are multiple cells on the effector side that are involved or can be involved in damage to the central nervous system. But what's also interesting about Bruton's tyrosine kinase is B cells are not the only cell that expresses this enzyme, this protein kinase. We also find them in myeloid cells, or specifically relative to the CNS, microglia. So what are the implications of the biology of Bruton's tyrosine kinase within myeloid cells from an MS perspective? So when we look at signaling within myeloid cells, one... The B cell is activated, it's from an autoantigen binding to the B cell receptor, which is essentially an autoantibody on the surface of the B cell, a clonal antibody. There are no antibodies as receptors on myeloid cells, but there are FCR receptors and toll-like receptors on the surface that lead to microglial activation. And when they are bound, you get activation of the Bruton's tyrosine kinase. So what's the downstream implication of this activation in a myeloid cell? Similar to the B cell, you get cytokine production in a pro-inflammatory milieu, leading to a variety of potential effector damage events within the central nervous system. And importantly, you get a certain phenotypic change within myeloid cells. It turns out that not all microglia are the same. They wear different name tags, and they have different effects within the central nervous system. And the two phenotypes that we pay attention to are called the M1 and M2 phenotypes. Um, I love immunology because it's one of the most complex biologies in, in the human system, and we love to simplify it into just dichotomous groups. So I guarantee within the next five years, we will talk to you about other myeloid phenotypes. But for right now, we talk about the two, the M1, which is pro-inflammatory, which you tend to see with activation of the Bruton's tyrosine kinase, and the M2 phenotype, which is felt to be anti-inflammatory based on the cytokine profiles that are produced. So naturally, uh, if you were to target, and what's shown here is the Bruton's tyrosine kinase on your left side of the screen, on the M1 side, act, after activation of a toll-like receptor, leading to downstream transcription of pro-inflammatory cytokines, and the M2 phenotype of myeloid cells has pathways that do not involve Bruton's tyrosine kinase. So if you wanted to shift the balance between M1 and M2 phenotypes of these microglial cells, you could target Bruton's tyrosine kinase. And indeed, this is what in vitro data suggests, that in the setting of inhibition of Bruton's tyrosine kinase, you lead to an over-representation of the M2 phenotype of microglial cells, which importantly suppresses autoreactive cells. You get a relative expansion of T-regulatory cells, which would in theory be of benefit to our patients with autoimmune diseases, and obviously specifically multiple sclerosis. So where do we place Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors in multiple sclerosis? What's fascinating, in, one of the fascinating things about it in my mind, is it's a single target that would have an impact on both the adaptive and the innate immune system simultaneously. And this is something we have not had in our armamentarium before, but over the years as we have paid more attention to the innate immune system there is mounting evidence that suggests that it plays a role in neurodegeneration and progressive disease. So it's tantalizing to think about the fact that a single agent could benefit our patients via multiple pathways, as outlined here. So we've talked about kind of the excitement, the theoretical excitement, and Tony's going to give you the data on why it's really exciting. You can see actual MRIs and clinical events and our patients and studies benefiting and where are we going with the field. But I wanted to give a word of caution to all of us relative to this new class of drugs coming out, because it's unlike anything else we've dealt with in the field of multiple sclerosis, and I don't feel as though we are cognitively prepared to really process some of the information. And why is that? It has to do with the target. The Bruton-Syrosine Kinase is part of a large family, the tech protein family, and they have multiple domains, and they're listed here, and they have great names like PH Tech Domain and SH3 Domain and SH2 Domain and we can do all the reading you want in terms of the different domains, but when you see an enzyme with multiple domains, number one, it means every drug will bind at the target differently. And by binding the target differently, each drug are going to have subtle, nuanced differences relative to dosing, efficacy, and side effect profiles. We are used to, in our field, lumping drugs into classes, the interferons, the B-cell depleters, the S1P drugs, and I would caution us to recognize we will probably not be able to do that with the Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So what are some of the agents, the factors relative to inhibition that will differentiate the drugs? We as a field have never talked about, is that drug reversible or non-reversible relative to inhibition of an enzyme? Is it binding covalently or non-covalently? We've, we've never had to pay attention to these things. Our, oncology colleagues, pay attention to it, we have not been forced to. But with this group of drugs for the first time, this is a language that we will have to become familiar and comfortable with because it will have real clinical implications for the patients we treat. And so as you look through the data that Tony's going to present, recognize that while you might see some trends, it's going to be important as we go through upcoming phase three studies, not to assume success or safety in one drug will predict success or safety in another drug because they are very unique and very different. So what would I want you to take away from this overview? So the first is the Bruton's tyrosine kinase is a complex molecule, multiple functions within both the adaptive and innate immune system, but it offers a fascinating target to manipulate that may give us a brand-new option therapeutically for our multiple sclerosis patients. We are going to be paying attention to certain safety issues, We're going to look for infectious complications due to immunosuppression. We're going to look for hepatic toxicity known to some of uh, the drugs relative to BTK inhibition. And obviously what we're going to look for is how do we dose these drugs in our patients to balance the safety and hopefully efficacy, not just for stopping relapses, but also for looking at neurodegeneration and progression. So with that, I am thrilled to turn things over to Tony to get us introduced to the clinical evidence we have. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Uh, That was wonderful.
0: So we always give Ben the easy talk, and then I get the more challenging details. So uh, uh, without further ado, um, so there are several different BTK inhibitors in development for multiple sclerosis, and I just listed uh, just some of them that I, I had available when I was putting this together. And And currently, we have at least three in phase three trials. But we have data for two of them from phase two trials. And that's really what I wanted to um, focus on for the first part of the presentation. So we're going to get into the first study is the evobrutinib. And this is their phase two clinical trial. It's a very classic clinical trial design. So relapsing patients or even secondary progressive patients, as long as they had uh, disease activity, inflammatory activity, could enroll into the study. And it would be a six-month dose-finding study, with uh, placebo uh, or one of um, three doses, and then uh, an active comparator with uh, dimethyl fumarate. And then at the end of that, uh, patients, uh, the placebo patients, would go on to low dose for another, and the patients be followed for another six months, and then go into an open-label extension study of uh, 75 milligrams once a day. So. One of the higher doses, and eventually that changed to seventy-five milligrams twice a day. So, very classic phase two trial design, and the main endpoint is going to be uh, MRI disease activity, which is the more sensitive measure for finding uh, the best anti-inflammatory dose in in uh, relapsing-remitting multiple sclerosis. There's also clinical outcomes as well. So, here's the main outcome, and. You can see uh, the placebo rate in orange, the low dose in, in dark blue, and then the two seventy five 75-milligram doses once daily or twice daily, and then uh, dimethylfumarate. And, and dimethylfumarate may look um, uh, less impressive than placebo, but that's often driven by one patient with a high uh, lesion count. So dimethylfumarate does work. Um, but um, what's... Uh, the one to focus on is the 75 milligram twice a day. That is the dose that's gone forward into phase three clinical trials that are actually fully recruited now for this, for this medication or for this uh, product. And you can see it's very effective at suppressing new inflammatory, new gadolinium-enhancing lesions as well as T2 lesions at the, at the end of the study at the 24-week time point. And you see a nice dose response pattern there as well. It also, uh, this is looking at relapses at, from week 0 to 24 and week 0 to 48. Again, it's the light blue color, which is the 75 milligrams twice a day that has gone into phase 3 clinical trial and very effective at preventing uh, relapses at 6 months and at 12 months. There was no change in EDSS uh, in any of the groups. And again, that's a relatively short period of time to see a change, but encouraging not to see any worsening of EDSS and at this meeting, there was some, uh, two posters presenting some longer extension, label extension on safety as well as uh, continued suppression of the relapse rate at this uh, targeted open-label dose of 75 once a day or 75 twice a day. In terms of tolerability, uh, basically very well-tolerated drug. Um, there were uh, a small percentage of uh, discontinuation, so Just for simplicity, we have here just the placebo or 25 milligram, which essentially is close to placebo experience, versus the 75 milligrams twice a day, which is the target dose for the clinical trial, phase 3, and then in comparison, dimethylfumarate. Um, What's always encouraging is not to see uh, an infection signal when you're messing with the immune system, and compared to placebo or, or dimethylfumarate, we're not seeing any increase in infections, and of course not... Surprisingly, not seeing any flushing or lymphopenia. Uh, Again, pretty rare to see lymphopenia with this class of drug. And uh, there can be, um, it is liver metabolized, so it's not unusual to sometimes see a transient increase in liver enzymes, and those tend to go away with uh, continued uh, medication usage. Although Some patients did discontinue because of uh, a pre-planned threshold. Overall, just 23 withdrawals out of 267 patients by the end of week 24. The second study is a different compound, different company, Talabrutinib. Um, I'm very familiar with this one. I was one of the investigators in the study. Uh, several neat things about this is I think this might become a new clinical trial design for phase 2 uh, dose-finding studies. Uh, recall the classic phase 2 study is six months of placebo exposure, which is less attractive uh, to recruit for and, or to participate in as a patient. And so this uh, study only had one month of placebo exposure and three months of drug exposure at the different doses, and um, which um, uh, was very attractive for recruiting patients and maintaining patients in the study. In fact, at the end of the study, we only had one patient uh, drop out uh, for uh, uh, various reasons. And then the, these patients would go on to uh, an open-label extension with uh, what was eventually become the targeted uh, dose, which is a 60 milligrams. And again, MRIs are the primary outcome. And the second unique aspect of this clinical trial design that I think we'll see again in the future is this uh, way of modeling your data because you have one month of placebo data, three months of, of, of uh, drug exposure data. How do you determine the efficacy of the drug or the drug response curve. And so uh, there's this multiple comparison procedure with modeling. It's an FDA-approved approach to analyze data. And what you see in that uh, graph, those nine graphs, are different potential types of dose-response curves for for a medication. And so you take your data and see how it plots into each of those nine curves to determine which is the most appropriate, or likely, or best-fitting curve for your dose response uh, for your medication, and that um, ends up letting you know the kind of the pharmacodynamics of your medication. So here is the actual um, results. Uh, so placebo in orange again, and the uh, dose that is going has gone forward in phase three trial is 60 milligrams. This is suppressing new gadolinium-enhancing lesions, and again, you can see this class of drug in Phase two shows a dose effect in both studies and shows a very uh, impressive suppression of new GAD activity uh, at the uh, target dose for the Phase three trials. 85% suppression compared to placebo. The other aspect, uh, this was uh, presented at uh, American Academy, was looking at um, the subgroup of patients who had highly active disease characteristics going into the study, and about half the patients who enrolled in the trial had highly active disease, and it's defined there as an enhancing lesion within six months prior to screening or more than nine lesions on on their baseline MRI or at least two relapses in the prior year to screening. And those are predictors of active disease. And and, and so they're relatively equally balanced across the different doses, uh, placebo and, and the target dose of 60 milligrams. And... Here again, you can see that in the higher-risk patients, this type of medication, the uh, BTKI inhibitor, is very effective at suppressing new MRI disease activity uh, down to 0.08 lesions uh, per patient, which is, again, very impressive. Once again, wonderfully tolerated medication. Uh, We only had one patient discontinue. I think she discontinued to uh, uh, pursue pregnancy in the future. Uh, didn't see any opportunistic infections, um, and um, there was a, a transient uh, liver enzyme increase. That the patient did continue on medication, and that uh, resolved itself. It didn't uh, require discontinuation. And going into the open-label study, uh, the majority of patients continue on the medication, and, and um, just how my participants are reporting to me, they're very happy with the side effect profile of this medication.
1: So, Tony, can I ask a question? Because we, we got one interesting question based on what you just presented around the trial design that was used in the phase two, which was, had the placebo run in and then a placebo withdrawal. It, I haven't seen that before in, in phase two trials, not just by shortening the placebo, but by getting data on a cohort withdrawn from a drug, which is a question that comes up all the time and we never have it in trial. So I'm I was thrilled to see that as part of it. One of the questions that we got from the audience was, what about risk of rebound? Do you know if in the trial there was any signal in the month, come, which is a short period of time, but was there any signal in the arm that went on drug first and then went to placebo of a rebound effect coming off drug? Has that been looked at? Um,
0: it's been uh, discussed, and to my knowledge, unofficially, there's been no signs of rebound. And I think it's a drug um, that I would predict there would not be rebound uh, because you're not um, blocking cells. So there's not these cells waiting, lymphocytes waiting behind a wall to explode out. So I think um, I, I would be optimistic that this is a drug that would not um, um, be a uh, high risk for rebound. Would be interesting how long does the efficacy last after discontinuing yeah. medication. Um, but um, but that, again, that is the advantage of that trial design is there's more data we can tease out, such as any signs of rebound at, at the four-week mark, because by then, for sure, the drug's all metabolized away. Yeah, I think there's one question I wanted to touch on, too. I think this is with the first, the evibrutinib study, the 13% discontinuations seems significant. Um, I think part of that was driven, though, by a preplanned um, uh, uh, um, threshold for liver enzyme elevation. I think some patients were discontinued if their liver enzymes went up Rather than just waiting to see if those liver enzymes would come down. So I, I my when I read the paper, uh, that was my interpretation that it might have been an over enthusiastic discontinuation criteria rather than just waiting to see if those liver enzymes would, were uh, were transient. But again, there might be differences in tolerability as as Ben was mentioning because each of these drugs are different. They're going after a similar target, but some of their mechanisms are different, and that might that might be one of the distinguishing factors in the future. But phase three will. I think will be much more informative in terms of long-term safety and tolerability. But great, great question. Thank you. So I'm going to go on to progression because that's really the unmet need. Uh, you know, In fact, when I, I was initially hesitant to get involved in, in, in another relapsing-remitting trial of another oral medication because I thought we had quite a few medications out there, but I'm glad I did get involved because the tolerability uh, with this medication is so good with these types of medications, seems so good. And the safety, we're not seeing lymphopenia, that I think there is room for more relapse remitting drugs, especially if they're highly efficacious, as this may be. Um, but uh, the real gap and the real potential, uh, what we hope will be the promise, is also an impact on disability progression early in the disease and late in the disease. And uh, certainly from our Phase two trials, they tend to be underpowered or too short to really pick up a strong signal on on, uh, for example, EDSS progression, but there are some other analysis and, and indirect evidence from other models to try to uh, explore uh, the hypothesis that this uh, the BTK molecules inhibitors, which can affect um, microglia, may also impact on mechanisms of progression. I'll just cover some of the a couple things that have come out. Right. So this is just a uh, reminder cartoon. Um, uh, that you can mark up um, of just this concept of mechanisms. BTKs are working peripherally, but they may cross the blood-brain barrier and work centrally as well to uh, affect the microglia and, and prevent, um, hopefully prevent some of the neurodegenerative aspects of the disease. I've heard many wonderful talks about all the different theoretical mechanisms or multiple mechanisms of progression in MS, um, and, and microglia always seems to come out. Probably not the only mechanism,
1: No, and I I think we all accept the fact that we're still dealing with a heterogeneous pathobiology in the global population of MS patients. And so for all the patients we all treat and see clinically, there are multiple mechanisms for getting to the symptoms and the damage that our patients have. have. And And so this is an argument to have as multiple tools in your toolbox to try and get as many people into remission. So I guarantee there are patients where microglia are probably critical for the progression I I couldn't answer the question of what percent of the population is at the key.
0: An area I'm interested in, Nancy and I were talking about this earlier, is what about the spinal cord? Are the mechanisms that's driving progression in the brain the same that's driving progression in the spinal cord? Because we certainly have patients that seem more spinal cord dominant. So um, hopefully hopefully this type of research and, and therapies will open the door to not just looking at the brain but other tissues as well. Okay. So I just uh, want to finish with a couple of slides. So these are just to to make you aware, some of the uh, peripheral studies going on with the two different molecules uh, looking at uh, different models of progression. So uh, with evobrutinib, there was a a canine uh, model of granulomatous meningoencephalitis with nine uh, dogs. Uh, It's hard to get that word out because I have a dog. And then there's a a, a mouse model of EAE, a progressive EAE mouse model. And so some of the findings basically is that BTK is involved in these mechanisms for these two animal models of inflammatory disease, and that um, using evobrutinib in these models would decrease, um, these, uh, would affect the BTK mechanism as well as uh, leading to a better outcome for the uh, treated animals. So some indirect evidence of a um, uh, uh, biological effect on those models of progression, and then with uh, talabrutinib, there's a, a range of, of um, other experiments. Uh, for example, in postmortem human brain, uh, BTK was uh, is, is expressed in microglial cells. That's why the concept of getting across the blood-brain barrier and affecting those that tissue, uh, those cells would be uh, potentially beneficial for progressive MS uh, in a mouse uh, brain. It's, uh, can be down-regulated, uh, the microglia can be down-regulated by BTK inhibitor after being up-regulated by, uh, in, uh, uh, stimulation. And then there's also in vitro mouse microglia cell line set. Again, you can stimulate the cells and then prevent that, uh, in, um, excitation by uh, using BTK inhibitors. So it's a lot of good indirect evidence, but the proof will really be in the uh, human studies. This is one last uh, study. This is a human study looking at the penetration of talibrutinib into the CSF. So uh, the, uh, the, the, the more data points are just really the serum concentration of the drug, and uh, the, the one arrow point is the mm-hmm. talibrutinib level in the CSF about two hours after taking the medication. And it's a, at a level that would be considered therapeutic for affecting microglia uh, uh, activity. So we know that um, uh, at least there are going to be some models there where we get a sense of does penetration uh, have an impact on, on microglia function, assuming microglia are the major drivers of progression? And uh, again, in, in, in some of the phase two trials, um, uh, again, the, this is with talabrutinib, there was um, some evidence with um, looking at the exploratory MRI outcomes, slowly expanding lesions and phase rim lesions. Uh, it's, again, very exploratory, uh, trying to... Um, get a sense of are we affecting different biomarkers that we associate with progressive MS patients, and we are seeing some positive results in in that analysis that's been presented recently at ECTRIMS, as well as uh, uh, published in Lancet Neurology by Danny Reich. But really, uh, where we're going to get the answers, particularly on progression, is going to come from the very um, successfully recruiting Phase three trials. So uh, there are three studies in relapsing forms of MS, evobrutinib, um, tolibrutinib, and phenobrutinib. They're all versus teraflunamide, so there's no uh, placebo. Well, there's, of course, there's a placebo, but everybody gets an active treatment. And then, so those studies will really give us a better sense of tolerability and safety in the more uh, accurate estimate, estimation of the impact on preventing relapses and MRI disease activity short-term and long-term, and probably some brain atrophy data as well. The f- exciting studies as well are going to be the progressive MS studies. And there are uh, three of those. Um, So tolibrutinib and fenabrutinib are being looked at in primary progressive uh, MS, and um, a very important target. We do see some benefit going after B cells with ocrelizumab in primary progressive MS, but uh, we need to do better. So ocrelizumab has opened the door, but can we go better than that? And so looking at uh, drugs that can um, affect B cells in a different way might be the mechanism that we need especially if they could affect microglia. And then uh, really another neat study is looking at non-relapsing secondary progressive MS, another big unmet need to see if uh, uh and this is a placebo-controlled trial, can um, affect that. And so I understand for sure the relapsing studies have gone quite well in terms of recruitment. I believe evobrutinib has fully recruited, and uh, probably tolibrutinib is probably getting close as well. I'm not sure the status of fenobrutinib. And of course, the progressive studies tend to be uh, slower and more challenging to recruit for, uh, especially in this uh, uh, post-COVID era. I think i can call called the post-COVID era. Hopefully, <laughs> one of these we, days we can hope. So, here are my conclusions around uh, the BTK inhibitors. Uh, they on phase two, they work. They're very effective at suppressing new gad activity. So, I'm I'm really optimistic about the um, the phase three trials confirming and expanding on what we saw in Phase 2. And, and I think because they're so well-tolerated, um, they're going to have a, a good place in, in, our, uh, in for patients um, newly diagnosed or relapsing disease. I would predict. I'm, I'm not saying to prescribe it now, of course. And I think what is also nice is we're not seeing lymphopenia. And so for uh, often we're sequencing drugs, um, and lymphopenia can sometimes delay escalating to a different drug. So I, I think... Um, uh, we won't have to worry about that as much with this type of drug. So it, it, there will be room for another oral or three more oral medications.
1: And, uh, yeah, that's uh, the end of my bet, and I think we're going to move on. Yeah, so before we do the case, there's a couple questions that might be of interest at this stage. So one is around the infection rate, and I, and I like this. It says, do you think the infection rate will be higher in phase three? So this is a crystal ball question. Uh, I don't know what your, your thoughts are on this, Tony, Um Every time I've tried to predict, I'm wrong. Um, uh, So whatever I say, go with the other. I I I don't know the answer to this. I'm, I'm not sure if Tony wants to posit a guess. I'll say we do have to be careful. Some people have said to look at the oncology literature, which is not going to be translatable to our patients because this is overwhelmingly hematologic malignancies who have underlying immune dysfunction, and so their infection rate probably is going to be higher than what we're going to see in our patient population who uh, don't have the overall comorbidities that our, our um, oncology patients do, but I don't. I don't know your thoughts. Yeah, on no. Phase I, two. I'm feeling really optimistic.
0: Um, one because we have two different BTK inhibitors that both have shown good safety signal in phase two in the short term, and now we actually have long term, relatively long term, uh, about um, close to two years now. And one of those posters on safety was here for evobrutinib, showing continued safety signal with no increased risk of infections. And I think because it's so focused on the B cells um, without depleting them, uh, that that's going to translate to a a good safety signal for for low risk of infections. The other thing that was shown uh, at the meeting is um, no uh, decrease in immunoglobulins. Uh, And that's one of the concerns that has been raised with the um, B cell depleting therapies, uh, that with chronic use, about, about 10% of patients will have a chronic B, uh, immunoglobulin depletion that, for, for some, will be a risk factor for infections. So we're not going to see that with this class of drug. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm feeling quite optimistic.
1: Okay. I hope I don't jinx it. Okay. You, if you did, uh, we'll hold you responsible. We, we have it on video. All right, so what we want to do, what we thought might be fun, is a 26-year-old woman uh, working full-time, active, healthy, had optic neuritis with a moderate visual deficit, full recovery three years ago, then had a partial transverse myelitis with some residual numbness in the feet a month ago, has an appropriate workup. Only a little bit of the workups listed here, but uh, any test for a mimic that you ask, uh, she had and it was negative. And ultimately, she's told you meet uh, McDonald diagnostic criteria for relapse-remitting multiple sclerosis. So um, based on the current data, so let, let's say what we want you to do is just a thought experiment of Let's say we finish the phase three trials in relapsing-remitting multiple sclerosis and the endpoints are met and they're on par with what you're seeing in the phase two compared to in one trial placebo and in one trial there's the dimethyl fumarate arm. Um, how would tyrosine kinase inhibition fit into this group as an option? So Tony, this is a question for you in terms of as you're looking at that spectrum mm-hmm. all the way from an induction therapy with alumtuzumab or cladribine down to platform therapy, how do, how do you conceptualize this class?
0: Yeah, and, and I guess I was faced with this when I was recruiting for the study as a principal investigator because my patients would have had all those options available, or almost all those options available to them. So how could I actually recruit into a study for a completely new agent? And um, so I, I would see uh, that this could be, could be a good first-line agent due to its tolerability and presumed efficacy. Um, and for me, it might be a toss-up, depending on the individual's goals in the next two to five years, between a molecule like this, that's tolerable, versus um, something like ocrelizumab, an anti-CD20 medication. Uh, let's say if um, the individual is considering pregnancy in the next year or two, I do tend to favor something like that. Uh, I think it's more convenient. Or if they travel a lot, I don't know. Uh, if i are the country a lot, which would be more uh, convenient, it'd be probably an easy molecule, filled, easy to travel with, but only having to top up twice a year. So I would probably weigh those two, those situations. What is the individual's goal, and how much convenience and
1: uh, tolerability do they want? Yeah. Hey, have you found single versus twice a day dosing to be a big issue in your clinic amongst the orals we we have on the market, once a day and twice a day dosing? Does that ever? I shouldn't say ever, because it's. It, does that frequently factor into prescribing in your clinic, either because of you or patient choice? It, it, um, surprisingly, it hasn't. I'm sure there's data out there that
0: suggests it does, um, but I, I think at the end of the day, if the medication's
1: tolerable, they're, they're going to take it once or twice a day. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, I do want to save time for some of the questions because you guys are asking some great questions here. So we added um, a little more information uh, to that first patient. So we're keeping essentially the, the same individual, but now we've changed her optic neuritis to an incomplete recovery. And her transverse myelitis wasn't just sensory. There was neurogenic bladder changes. And now her MRI, we're giving you a little data with the enhancing lesion on the brain. This is a different MRI, uh, both of the brain and the spinal cord. And it brings us back, to um, uh, the question of where do you go from here, and in this case, she was started on dimethyl fumarate, had side effects, and it even had a new lesion, uh, non-enhancing lesion on MRI and follow-up.
0: And, and of course, you know, for, for um, breakthrough disease with the BTK inhibitors, just to wrap this part up, is you know we, we don't know yet where they're going to fit in, if they're going to be considered a consider lateral switch for some medications or an escalation. We that's where the phase three data will really. Really play out. I think worst case scenario, if they're going to be a lateral switch, hopefully best case scenario for the medications will be, um, uh, in the higher end of efficacy for at least for uh, oral medications. Yeah.
1: I and mean, I think this is a good point to get to a lot of the questions you're sending in. We're going to answer as many as we can in the last 10 minutes. And, and these are some great questions. So keep sending them. The first one, Tony, I'm going to put to you because it, it goes to what you were just mentioning. And that is what gap are the BTKI drugs filling? Um, what do you think is the unmet need that these potentially uh, offer hope for?
0: Yeah, I think some of the gaps are filling. So on the the relapsing end of the spectrum, um, that's where I was wondering what the gap was, but a drug that doesn't cause lymphopenia and has really good tolerability um, will meet the needs for patients who are not tolerating their current oral medication. So I think there is a a good... um, And then once we know the true efficacy... We might see, um, you know, how does it compete against some of those other roles? So especially for our young population, uh, issues uh, flushing, diarrhea, hair loss, those can be, well, even
1: for us old people, that's those can be big issues. Um, yeah, I, I will say the other side is I, one of the things I think happened with ocrelizumab when it came on the market was having a single drug that met its endpoint in both a relapsing or bending trial and a primary progressive trial I think was a game changer for us as a field. I know I walked into clinics saying, geez, I can prescribe one drug and cover different aspects of the disease. Whether that that turns out to be as robust uh, as we want, I think will still be sorted out. But if that turns out to be the case with this class of drugs, if the trials meet their endpoint in progressive disease and relapsing disease, then it starts to play on that need of having a single drug covering multiple biologies that are important to our patients. And, and I think if we think of progressive MS, there's still an, an unmet need to do better.
0: And, and thankfully, Ocrevus shows that we can treat progressive MS. Well, what if, it, worst case scenario, it could be as good as Ocrevus, Ocrelizumab? Then then you have a second option to consider that might have a different safety profile for the elderly patient, for example, that um, uh, has difficulty accessing the fusion center or can't tolerate uh, potential risk with immunoglobulin depletion. Yeah. And, and then, of course, the secondary progressive patients, um, that aren't having
1: inflammatory activity, um, could, they're, they're a big unmet need for, for some type of treatment. So a follow up to that, one of the questions here is about, do you have any comments about the comparator agents in the PPMS trials? So there are two trials. And uh, I think it's worth noting one of them is a placebo-controlled trial, and one of them is a head-to-head with ocrelizumab. So in theory, at the end of that trial, we'll have some data relative to one agent in ocrelizumab. I, you know, I'm just, I think it's um,
0: well, great that we're going to have two very different study designs. Um, certainly the advantage of comparing to ocrelizumab is it's going to be a more, a, potentially a faster recruitable study, right? because patients are guaranteed a treatment. Uh, And so that's that's a um, logistic advantage. And then you could also have a a better sense of uh, comparability between uh, two medications, because it's randomized. The danger of that study, of course, is what sample size do you need to prove superiority or even non-superiority? That's a big statistician's discussion uh, in itself. So having a true placebo-controlled study Um, is going to be absolutely advantageous to truly
1: know uh, if this class of drug is working in primary progressive MS. Mm -hmm. So I'll I'll take one of the next questions before punting it back. So somebody asked, what other cells express Bruton's tyrosine kinase? And I love this question because at its heart is a concern about off-target effects. And my answer is going to have two parts. So one is the Bruton's tyrosine kinase, the member of the tech family of kinases is mainly in B cells, myeloid cells, and mast cells. That's where it's recognized the most. But tech family kinases are throughout the body. They're within the liver. Uh, they're within the GI tract. And so one of the issues isn't just where BTK is expressed, but where will the inhibitor have slightly different binding characteristics to a non-BTK Tech protein family. So remember I said I was going to come back to that family. Well, here it is. Uh it's not just enough to know where this kinase is. We have to know how well, how specific the inhibitor is for the BTK compared to the other proteins in the family. Cool. And then the other question that was was on here was um do you have thoughts as to why everybody's comparing to teraflutamide in the relapsing remitting trials? They started with dimethyl fumarate in the phase two, and now it's it's teraflutamide. Do you have thoughts or comments about that?
0: Yeah, I I think part of with the teraflutamide, and people could argue this point, is um, because you don't get the flushing, you might have less um, unblinding of what the patients are on. I mean, there are, you know, teraflutamide has its own unique side effect profile, but
1: I I think you're more likely to maintain the blind uh, with with that. and are you aware if anyone's studying these drugs in other neurodegenerative disorders, Alzheimer's or, or Parkinson's? I'm personally not aware, but it doesn't mean it isn't happening. I don't know of an active clinical trial with, with these for Alzheimer's.
0: No, no, I can't think of one either. And I'm trying to think, would,
1: why would that mechanism work? Yeah, I'm assuming there's uh, some thoughts around microglial activation and yeah, some neurodegenerative yeah, yeah, yeah. disease, but I'm, I'm not aware of that in trials. It's yeah. a good question. There was a question on the reversibility and non-reversibility, and parallel, the second question beyond that was around half-lifes of these drugs. Um, one of the things to remember with each of these drugs, whether it reversibly or non-reversibly um, alters enzymatic activity, is once the drug's out of your system, your cells will bake new enzyme. So um, there, it will affect the immunologic half-life of the drug, a non-reversible or irreversible binding will have a longer immunologic effect than a reversible, um, but you have to look at both the half-life of the agent and the immunologic effect. Most of the half-lives are actually relatively short, um, not as short as something like the fumarates, um, but probably not as long as something like the S1P drugs, and so it's somewhere in between, and you have to look at each drug independently because they're all different. I I think what this means is we're going to have to get used to not just monitoring when is the drug out of your system, but actually, when does your immune system go back to a certain level of activity after discontinuing the drug? Where this has come up in my practice over the last year and a half uh, over and over again is around vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Um and for people who are on immunosuppression, could you go off drug safely to create a window where you could have an efficacious response to a vaccine and then get back on your drug? Something we I don't think has have sorted out for anti-CD-20 monoclonal antibodies, but I could see these drugs in a lane, giving us opportunities to manage that issue if indeed they interfered with vaccine efficacy. One thing we might have been talking about earlier is, um,
0: you know, we're used to our our medications being one size fits all. It's one dose of okrolizumab, one dose of interferon, or what have you. And the question with this type of medication that's affecting uh, kinases is, you know, people might metabolize or, or, or differently, and we might have to look at strategies of, personalizing the dose,
1: uh, depending on the individual's pharmacokinetics. And, and that's something that we have completely lacked in the field of multiple sclerosis. So, you know, I look at my colleagues in stroke who look at platelet activating factor assays. They follow an INR with warfarin, and they personalize a dosing around the biology to get the desired effect we want. We have never had that in multiple sclerosis, and it'd be really nice to have a drug where you could personalize the dosing around some sort of biomarker that had clinical um, implications.
0: There, there was one question that uh, was about uh, how quickly do, does the medication work. And, um, you know, certainly the, the from the Talabrutinib study, it was just three months of drug exposure, and we had high efficacy at that point. So we know at least within three months we're at uh, what looks like peak efficacy, uh, and we could probably dig back into some of the earlier MRIs to see how quickly that medication works, uh, uh, if it's even sooner than that. So that's quite rapid. And um, when you consider the ocrelizumab phase 2 data, it was about three months when it hit its peak efficacy. Yeah. So it's a pretty, you know, I think we're looking at a pretty impressive um, uh, efficacy uh, profile.
1: Well, as we come to the end of the hour, I want to keep everybody on time on their last evening. I appreciate everyone's attendance and great questions. These, these were wonderful. I want to thank Tony for being a great partner, peer review, and our sponsors uh, and we'll be hanging around if there are other questions. Tony, any closing thoughts? No, it's words? always a pleasure, Ben, and, and I wish you. Ben, shut a, up. Ben, that, shut a, up. <laughs> and good luck in the next election. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everyone.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peer View Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for
1: instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NXB860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from EMD Serono
0: Incorporated.